Fast Forward Productions. The women are speaking. Tempered through fire, all survivors possess wisdom and grit. Reclaim power and revel in life. I'm Kelsey Harper. My pronouns are she, her. I'm a survivor and clinical psychologist, and this is The Initiated Survivor. Here, we discuss topics relevant to survivors, so please be mindful of your needs as some of these topics might be triggering. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Initiated Survivor. Today is a really important episode. I meet with Arifa Mosavi and listen to her story, and I think that This episode really highlights some key roles that we play as survivors, that something that is very vital and integral to our healing, that not only do we share our story and tell our story, and that's incredibly important, but the ways in which we gather together as a community and hold space for hearing each other's stories is also healing and important. And that's what we're going to do today for Arifa. She has such an important story to share us about what happened to her and her relentless pursuit of justice despite so many multiple barriers and infuriating invalidations and gaslightings by the system that is meant to protect us and keep us safe. And by listening to this episode, we get to hold space for Arifa and we get to hear this story and come together as a community for her. In fact, there's actual things that we can do that will help support her in her recovery and her journey to pursuing justice as well. I'm going to keep all of those links in the show notes, and she is also going to share some of the things and the action steps that you can take to help support her in her pursuit of justice. They do think that it's so important that we show this solidarity and solidarity and connection and community doesn't necessarily mean that we have to do all the right things and take all of the steps. Just listening to this episode is going to help forwarding it to a friend, a colleague, a family member, people who are survivors, people who are allies, people who don't know anything about the situation and about rape or rape culture. All of this can be a big service. And in this way, we can also help Arifa here. So to share a little bit about Arifa Mosavi. She graduated from the University of California, Berkeley with a BA in Peace and Conflict Studies and a minor in Human Rights. She is a public speaker, civil and human rights activist. In her spare time, she enjoys researching human rights issues and finds fulfillment in advancing human rights issues and helping others. Her areas of interest include regional conflict, political science, and human rights law. She's done so much to support all of us in her work, and now is a wonderful opportunity for us to return that favor and support her. I do feel something deep within me is that a key and vital part of my own recovery, and I think for anybody in recovery from trauma and survivorship, is about being able to be of service to our community and connect and contribute in a way. And this is how we can contribute here, hearing her story, holding space for her, sending her lots of love. And in this moment, we can connect with her story and allow ourselves to be changed by it. That sometimes is one of the biggest services that we can offer each other. So please join me in holding space for Arifa Mosavi right now. Thank you, everyone. 
Well, hi, Arifa. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. I've been really looking forward to getting to speak to you more and share some of your your story with the audience. Thank you so much for coming in. Likewise, Kelsey. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. Why don't we start? Can you tell us a little bit about your story, about what you would like to, what you want survivors to know? Sure. So my name is Arifa. I was targeted on the basis of my gender and religion by a former co-worker who was fixated on my hijab and wanted to see me without it on. After claiming he was only joking about the unwanted comments, he insisted that I could trust him and that I didn't have anything to worry about. But after gaining my trust, he lured me into a dark, secluded area on my former college campus's farm at Mount San Antonio College and raped me on December 12, 2013. Before and after he raped me, He continued to demand that I take my hijab off. He uh, repeatedly fetishized my right to wear a hijab and continued to do so even after I told him to stop. Um, And his behavior was specifically directed at me and the coworker's name, as also mentioned in legal documents, it's public record, is Chester Brown. Following the rape, I suffered institutionalized violence through the college campus reporting process and our failed legal system, uh, both of which did not, nor would hold him accountable. At the college level, the reporting process was dehumanizing and discriminatory. Mount San Antonio College chose not to investigate my complaint fairly. The Title IX coordinator actually demanded that I reenact the rape on her note taker, despite knowing that I was traumatized. Um, She claimed that my credibility would be questioned if I didn't comply. They failed to interview my witnesses, including one who was my sister who had actually experienced religious discrimination and sexual harassment by Brown himself before he would go on to target and rape me. But they interviewed people who admitted to having a favorable bias for him. I also gave them everything I had and made myself available for their investigation, but they falsely accused me of being uncooperative. Brown, on the other hand, failed to avail himself for some time after I issued the complaint against him. They failed to question his credibility when it was clear that he was withholding evidence and gave shifting accounts, which gradually described in greater detail a sexual assault. College defendants had also admitted under oath that they failed to review Brown's shifting accounts of what he did to me. To the Title IX officer, Brown admitted to forcing himself on me. He admitted he did not have my consent, but claimed he only gave me a bear hug but lasts no longer than 60 seconds. Then to our public safety, the public safety department, he added that he rubbed my back and put his hands on my waist, again, without my consent, and claimed that he only wiggled against me. To police officers, later he said that he had shook me. In reality, what he did was he was grinding his genitalia against my backside as my face was pressed against the wall and my back was facing him at one point while he was sexually assaulting me. And so what he was doing is he was basically trivializing and downplaying the severity of his actions to the college and the police and um, during depositions and in court. So in depositions, he lied under oath and claimed I willingly put my hands on him, again, changing the story when he um, initially had admitted that none of it was consensual. And, you know, I had also demanded multiple times that the college extend the investigation until my witnesses were interviewed. They agreed that they would, but they later lied to me and closed their investigation to my complaint without having, without having interviewed my witnesses. 
and haphazardly tossed my case to the Walnut Sheriff's Department. They later admitted under oath that they prematurely closed the investigation into my complaint when they shouldn't have. And, you know, at the court level, I found the courts to be as discriminatory as any other institution. After ruling in my favor twice, courts concluded that my, you know, testimony was true and consistent, but that his testimony was consistent and that his testimony was consistent with my own, um, but they didn't rule in my favor. So the first judge, Michael W. Fitzgerald, dismissed my case under what's known as summary judgment, where the college argued that there were no major factual differences between my account and theirs, that the courts were to look at my testimony as I had given it, uh, but they didn't do that, and they granted summary judgment. The way in which summary judgments are used, or was used in this case, was contradictory and flagrantly unfair. If there were truly no major differences between my account and what the college was saying, then I was right this entire time. Um, I was telling the mm. truth, but the system, you know, has failed me as it fails 98% of victims of sexual violence, but I'm still fighting for justice. I do detail everything I go through or went through, most of what I went through in a change.org petition where I'm still demanding justice and that you be held accountable for the rape you committed against me. Now, there was also the subsequent part of me then taking Chester Brown to trial in August 2018, but the presiding judge of that case, who was Virginia A. Phillips, she conducted herself prejudicially and was hostile towards me and my legal counsel at the time. She threatened me and my counsel with jail if we use the word rape to describe the rape Chester Brown committed against me. She threatened us with a mistrial if the words me too were used in court. She refused to allow my counsel to question jurors directly during jury selection to eliminate the potential for bias. So I, you know, I didn't have a jury of my peers. Uh, there were neither assault survivors nor Muslim women who wear hijab on the jury. So the judge also refused to allow me to refer to my medical records, which document extensive injuries I sustained because of the rape Chester Brown committed against me. However, she did allow Brown to use prejudicial documents he altered during trial against me. The judge also attempted to violate my supporters' First Amendment constitutional right to protest by prohibiting them from protesting with signs around um, the full block of the federal courthouse. And defense attorney Barton Carpenter for Chester Brown was caught influencing Brown to lie about what he could remember. Brown had also perjured himself on the witness stand with no admonition from Judge Virginia Phillips. You know, as I mentioned before, I didn't have a jury of my peers. There were no Muslims on the jury. Um, not that you'd need to be Muslim to take a stand against sexual violence and to uphold the rights of women universally, but because there was a religious component to the manner in which I was targeted, discriminated against, that that understanding, that mm -hmm. that need to have somebody there who would unequivocally defend my First Amendment constitutional right to religious freedom wasn't there that day on that jury. You know, um, nobody had any accurate idea about Islam and Muslim women or the diversity that exists among Muslims. They didn't appear to be listening to what I was saying about my own identity and my first right to interpret and practice my faith as I choose to wear my hijab and take it off when I choose. Um, instead, they might have chosen to assume things about me and believe the rapist. Brown actually lied and pretended to not know what a Muslim was prior to meeting with me. He knew my sister before me and had lived among Muslims in Ghana, Africa. He, you know, claimed Muslim women didn't wear hijab in Ghana and attempt to feign ignorance. And then at the 
police level, the detective assigned to my case um, had asked for the clothes that I was wearing on the night Brown raped me. I gave them to her. They were last um, were known to have been in her possession, but had since gone missing. So during the court proceedings, she herself admitted under oath that she had no experience investigating acquaintance rape. The inference being that she handled my case with a prejudicial view of rape that wasn't consistent with the unique facts of how Brown raped me and might not have been consistent with how, uh, how the statute defines rape. And she was actually testifying as a witness for the man who raped me. And this was a detective who I had publicly criticized before. Um, so there's public record of me when I was publicly confronting Mount San Antonio College at one of the board meetings. I had also complained about how uh, Walnut Sheriff Station was handling my complaint as well. So there were some concerns with how law enforcement was, was treating this case. You know, I, as a hijab-wearing Muslim woman, I felt that I faced Islamophobia in addition to sexism and racism. Again, there was just a failure to uphold my right as a Muslim woman to wear my hijab without being subjected to violence and discrimination. And there was just an overall failure to acknowledge that Brown infringed on my right to wear it by the college, the cops, and the courts. While the college did nothing, detective at the Walnut Sheriff Station ignorantly told me that Brown's actions weren't sexual harassment, let alone sexual assault and didn't acknowledge religious discrimination. Thank you for, for sharing all of that. I think you're sharing some really important and really, really vital things for all of us to pay attention to and, and to really notice how quickly and, and effectively we can get invalidated and denied and dismissed by the system and I think that your story also shows how how much courage and power that you really demonstrated by not letting up and by clearly defining what happened to you and not letting them define it for you. I think that's that's really, really important. And and especially all of these multiple failings and how they address things in ways to continue to alienate you in this process and make it harder and harder and harder for you to get justice, for you to be able to even tell your story in a safe way, and for you to continue to persevere through that is remarkable. And it's an experience, obviously, we wish nobody ever has to go through when they are seeking justice and attention to what happened to them yeah thank you for sharing your thoughts on that so where where are things for you now with everything because it i mean this sounds very recent that the first case started in in 2018 are things still ongoing so we had actually planned on taking this case to the supreme court um, and that was what I was expecting. But um, unfortunately, because there was uh, concern about a majority of conservative justices sitting on the Supreme Court, mm, there was yeah. concern about not prevailing at the Supreme Court and also concern that failing at the Supreme Court would harm survivors nationally. 
by mm. creating um, a nationwide precedent that would essentially allow colleges and universities to continue to get away with not even interviewing victims, witnesses, for instance. At least that that was what the concern was relayed to me. And I was, you know, I was still, I'm pretty, I understand, but it's, it is still pretty. It's heartbreaking to yes. hear that, that out of interest of trying to protect the whole population of survivors, we have to stifle stories or at least stifle seeking justice. And I mean, I can't imagine having to go in front of somebody who is a rapist and try to have our, our cases be heard by, by that justice as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, and also the willingness that you had to do that, you know, and how much risk was involved and to, to do something like that and how powerful that is. And it's, it, it's just infuriating because it also speaks to so much going on culturally in the U.S. Um, and our community where we have so many limitations on our ability to be ourselves, to speak out about what's going on and to really seek very real change in a, in a big way. You know, because this would, the, it's one of those things where it feels like this would be such an important case for the whole nation to hear um, and to be a part of it in, in so many ways and, and to see some change, but then also to have that threat that because our Supreme Court has become so partisan that that's just not accessible anymore. Right. So right now it sounds like, are you, are you kind of just kind of shaping your next steps with this? You know, how are how are things for you going right now? Because I think it and, and this is from a lot of survivors who have reported and, and I did not report mine. So this has not been my experience. But a lot of survivors who reported talk about feeling like recovery or healing doesn't necessarily happen or feel like it really mobilizes and starts until the conclusion of some of the core processes, which for some survivors, given anything that they've experienced, can be decades. Yes. What has been something, you know, is that, how are you doing with, with that process? You know, I, I felt like almost a decade of my life, my youth was stripped from me, trying to simply hold somebody accountable for stripping me of my dignity, my humanity, mm -hmm. and subjecting me to such dehumanizing treatment. I am still healing. At the same time, I am interested in pursuing criminal charges against him at this point. The legal arena that I had pursued previously was civil federal, but not criminal. But because there's evidence of perjury and evidence tampering and suppression of evidence, I'm interested in pursuing criminal accountability. And do you have a change.org petition? that where I describe in detail what happened, not everything, because there's just so much that happened. It's kind of, it's almost impossible for me to get everything in at once, but there's that. And, you know, in terms of healing, it's hard. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's so difficult to heal from years of trauma and then being re-traumatized 
yeah institutionally and i don't i worry that i don't that i won't ever heal mm-hmm. fully i certainly know that i'm not the same you know kind of person that i was prior to having gone through all of this but you know i i don't i don't want to be hopeless <laughs> about mm-hmm. all of this yeah i know i think this is me trying to be like, I have so many wonderful words of wisdom and being like, yeah, this is hard. Yeah. And, and that being like the most eloquent wisdomous words that I have right now, because it's, yeah, like, and, and I think all of us can resonate with that feeling of fear of like, I might never recover from this and how terrifying that is, you know, and that, that like, for me, it was definitely an experience of just like pervasive darkness. And it was really hard to put towards even that feeling of what was being carried within me. And I think for me now, I wouldn't necessarily say I'm recovered, I'm healed, all done, like I'm moving on. I think it's it's more like it's definitely still something that I carry with me every day. I mean, that's part of also me starting this podcast and trying to move towards bigger movement in some way, shape or form is because it, it has never left me. And I, I've come to a place of accepting that it's never going to leave me. And also that I've reached a place where I'm able to live a life that feels so truthful to who I am with this as being part of my story. And with that said, like, I think that there's, you know, there's unfortunately not like a very clear timeline for anyone as to like, when am I going to arrive to a place where I feel better about life or I feel more like I can access life, that I can go be in things and, and go back to this, this sense of who I am. And I know for me, and I think for, for many survivors I've talked to, but I know especially for me, it was, there was a before there was life and there was who I was and there was everything I thought the world was before it happened. And then it was completely obliterated everything. And now there's this after and it will always be after, but it won't always be suffering and it won't always be frightening or painful. And there are going to, there is going to be a time when you do feel reconnected and back into a place where you could experience things like joy and peace and happiness and you know that sense of purpose that we get from some of these these parts of our life that's all that's all definitely possible for sure and i can imagine that it's incredibly hard to be in a place where there's these parallel experiences of seeking justice where you are reliving this traumatic experience and then also reliving the compounding traumatic experience that you've had with all the different systems failing you along. And I guess like there's part of me that feels like saying that they failed you is almost making it sound like they, they at least tried. And there's part of me that's like, did they, it it sounds actually like in, in some respects, actually they were themselves actually perpetrating violence themselves with what they were saying and what they were doing and directly interfering with with you trying to seek justice and in some ways very direct actions actually trying to make that happen 
I don't want to put words in your mouth if that doesn't feel accurate to how your experience is, but it feels much bigger than just that like mistakes happen. It actually feels like very, very deliberate. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Yes. Very deliberate, very purposeful to be willingly continuing to engage in a system that does that while also trying to recover and heal can be very, very taxing and very painful for sure. And, and can definitely wear down anybody's hope. I know. And I think that's kind of, that's one of the things that, you know, I've offered to friends and community members that sometimes like we don't have to always also carry our own hope as cheesy as that can sound, but in the sense that we can also rely on others to carry like the burden of trying to hope for things. And we can allow ourselves to just be wherever we are and that allow the people around us, like our supporters, our community to be the source of inspiring and motivating hope for us so that we don't feel burdened with that task of, I have to, I have to keep pursuing these things, keep pursuing justice, keep pursuing my healing. And I also have to keep fostering hope in myself and running out of energy. And that can be something to also that, that the community can kind of step in and offer here as well. Yeah. So when you think about all of this, it's, it's interesting because typically when, when I'm recording these different episodes and stuff, like I'm thinking about like, how are we, how are we offering support to the community through our conversation? And in many ways, it's very inherent. It's just like allowing people to witness something that we know is going to resonate with them is going to help support them. But I also feel like in this moment, it's kind of like, in what ways can the community offer support to you? That we're all here for you too, and definitely want to be there for you. Is there things that our community can do that would support you? Yeah. Um, as far as the change.org petition, I'd be happy to share that. People can be feel free to read it, sign it. If people want access to public records, the court transcripts are available on PACER for viewing. I do cite, I believe I cite depositions there. And in terms of, you know, correcting social issues that I do believe People can help empower change within our communities to actively prevent gender-based violence and discrimination, believe survivors, support survivors, challenge toxic masculinity and the presumption that masculinity, masculinity and manhood entails being violent, possessive, you know, selfish or entitled, demand the passage of the Equal Rights Amendment. Demands the ratification of the Convention on the Elimination of um, All Forms of Violence and Discrimination Against Women, otherwise known as CEDAW. For those who don't know, CEDAW is an international treaty body, a legal treaty body that recognizes the rights of women. And the United States, unfortunately, is one of only seven UN member states that has not ratified that convention. I'd be happy to talk more on that a bit later. In addition, you know, show up, show up for survivors in court. If a survivor decides that they want to pursue accountability against their abuser through the legal system, show up for them in court. Sometimes public pressure can actually, you know, it can influence 
some within legal institutions somewhere across the country to actually do right by survivors. Be there for victims, don't, you know, incessantly interrogate, question them. The, the best thing you can do for a survivor is to believe them and not, you know, sit there and interrogate aimlessly. Mm-hmm. I do think that there needs to be a recognition of, you know, how our institutions fail to address sexual violence and gender-based violence. And from that recognition, we start demanding change through those individuals who comprise our institutions and to those who are responsible for defining through law as to how they should function. So specifically, there are, you know, failures at the national, state, and societal levels in this country to recognize, enforce, and protect the rights of women unequivocally and universally. At the national level, I've mentioned before CEDAW, the U.S. has failed to ratify it without preservation, meaning that it has failed to ratify it without declaring it exempt from abiding by certain terms that are within the treaty body. And I mentioned also that the United States has, you know, failed to pass the Equal Rights Amendment um, nationally, which would if passed nationally, which it would, in theory, legally guarantee equal rights of citizens regardless of sex. So I think because, in part, our nation has failed to recognize women's equals, equal rights, our institutions that comprise our country, courts, police departments, college administrations, you know, workplace, will fail to uphold those virtues as well. So in courts, I think specifically, there is a problem of consent loophole where defendants will, you know, essentially argue that no amount of evidence is sufficient to prove consent wasn't given. So we should, in my view, adopt rules of evidence that are consistent with what most sexual assault survivors experience are and prohibit demands to prove consent through direct evidence. Because um, trying to establish proof of consent through direct evidence simply isn't consistent with how most sexual assaults occur, nor is it consistent with the kind of evidence most victims are likely to have. For instance, most victims don't record a perpetrator um, in the act of abusing them. It may not be likely that a perpetrator will admit in text that they raped a victim. I think the presence of psychological or physical damages could be sufficient to prove consent wasn't given. Presence of psychological damage, damages are certainly consistent with what assault survivors experience. And if you're a juror, you should assess whether or not a reasonable person would consent to activity that would result in the kind of damages a claimant has suffered. So, for instance, you know, a claimant presents evidence that they sustain PTSD following having been raped by the defendant. You should, you know, ask yourself, well, if if the behavior is truly consensual, would somebody sustain PTSD from consensual conduct? No, right. most likely not. And so in civil, in civil cases, the, the standard of evidence is supposed to be preponderance of evidence, essentially more likely than not standard. So I, I do think something like this should definitely be an appropriate standard of evidence to abide by, at least with this type of thinking and with what kind of you know, evidence should be acceptable. I think that that helps a whole lot because I think that a lot of us know that there's there's problems and are not able to necessarily get very specific about exactly what they are and what the solutions are, because it's kind of in many ways for many, many people. It's like, well, this isn't working, but I don't really know what could, you know, and you're offering some really specific direct solutions 
that are much more intuitive and, and survivor-centered and also centered in, in the research of what we know surviving sexual assault and rape really does look like instead of pushing for a specific agenda that continues to reinforce and support sexual violence and gender-based violence in our culture. Well, thank you for that. I was, you know, I was really hoping that um, some of these ideas wouldn't, you know, make other survivors feel excluded in any way, or that would be a hindrance to any movement that's aiming to augment and expand. No, I think, I mean, it, it sounds really, I think, especially where you're talking about, like, I didn't even know that there is this proof of consent that when people are pursuing charges against their perpetrator, that they have to have physical evidence that consent was not given. And that, I mean, it's, it's, that has to be like an immovable wall when for um, every single survivor coming forward. And that absolutely is something that has to change in order for any kind of justice to actually be achieved among many other things that definitely need to change as well. And, and even just for, for survivors to feel safe being able to come forward. I mean, that's kind of the, the number one thing that people report as fear about coming forward, about what happened to them, about sharing this with even just, you know, their friends, their family member, or just being more open about their experiences is the fear of not being believed, of not being believed that this was non-consensual and of people doing exactly that, even well-meaning people of like, well, you know, let's let's see if we can question or, or break down how consent worked here, how harmful that is in so many ways, you know, for survivors really blocking us from being able to connect with our community of support and gain recovery and, and, and build recovery and, and gain justice. But also we can see how the way that we encounter and address consent culturally through this very absolutist lens really is is limiting in so many ways and how it shapes our relationships, our communication, and how it reinforces gender-based violence, sexual violence, you know, sexism and misogyny and toxic masculinity and patriarchal systems to continue to operate. I mean, that might be expanding a little wide for our purposes for tonight, but that even just that one piece of the way that we continue to engage around consent in these systems is really, really stacked against, really, really stacked against women, really stacked against survivors in, in so many ways. Yeah. And the crazy thing is, it's actually not a legal requirement to have that kind of proof. That just seems to be the implicit nearly impossible burden uh you know standard of proof that's placed on the shoulders of victims to present mm. to a court even mm. in the criminal arena it's actually not the standard to have like a third party witness be present at the time of rape in order to corroborate a victim's rape whether or not they were raped yet that seems to be the implicit expectation that that prejudicial expectation that people would want is, oh, well, did anybody else see it happen? Or it, it's just constantly placing a higher burden on, you know, on the shoulders of victims than mm -hmm. what's technically even legally permissible under, under existing law, in my view. 
based on my experiences. And yeah, and I think that's helpful to identify, especially because there there definitely is a difference between this is a requirement versus this is, I, I like how you, you said that implicit pre- prejudicial expectation, because that, you know, an, a prejudicial expectation gets expressed in, in a multitude of ways throughout and can be communicated in such ways that it's going to permeate all parts of the case. You know, you talked a little bit about that, that healing is really is, is moving, but it's kind of hard right now. What are some of the things that you're doing as part of that process? I'm struggling to find, in all honesty, something that actually brings me joy. Because I do, I've been struggling with, you know, depression, PTSD, anxiety, following rape. It's just sometimes I have like intermittent bursts of interests and things, but it's just fleeting. It's not consistent. It's not this constant thing that I can have hope in. And I'm just at a place, and I don't mean to be like, you know, a negative Nancy or anything like that, but like if, if, if I'm just going to be 100% honest about where I am right now, yeah, it's just very hard for me to believe in anything anymore. I'm just kind of stuck in that space and, you know, I'm, I'm trying. Sometimes I find it helpful to focus on other human rights related issues and advocate for those as well. And to help others that are, you know, struggling in either similar situations or, you know, other dire situations as a means of escaping from my own, what I'm going through. It's hard. It's, it's just, it's really hard for me to find joy in much of anything right now. But, you know, I'm sure as time passes, I'll, I'll get to that point where I can believe in people and experience joy, as you mentioned earlier, things like that. I'm just kind of struggling, but you know, I have faith I'll get there eventually. Well, and I appreciate your your authenticity with us because that is such a normal experience for survivors with PTSD, depression, anxiety. You know, it seems like that's our our brain kind of prioritizes safety and survival over seeking joy or respite or play or any of these kinds of things that we our heart really longs for during this kind of stuff and it's so it can be such a painful loss to go through while while recovering in it with what you're describing of like kind of channeling some of this energy and towards getting active in human rights issues taking up other people's you know needs and causes and helping people sometimes can really help as like a way of getting out of getting out of our own closed space or I kind of think of it as like the cave for me it felt very much like a cave it it reminds me a lot of like you know the the idea of just taking the next indicated step that that's what you're doing a lot of and it's hard because we want to see like where this trail is heading and if it's going to head back to some joy or maybe head to some new joy and a new experience of joy and meaning and connection to things. And when we're in that space where that's really hard to access, it's that next indicated step, like what is literally just the next thing to do and how powerful that can be and getting space to be, you know, connected with others, you know, as a distraction, but also as, is a way of that 
I think it, it's a way of us remembering things that are important to us and like remembering like what our personal values are. And even if we're not like really feeling that kind of feeling that we get when we're active in our values, you know, that like sense of like, I'm feeling really satisfied or fulfilled or coming alive when I'm, when I'm acting in my values. And when we're in, in the thick of PTSD and depression, it's really hard to feel that, but doing it anyways, is that space. It's almost like holding space for those values. Like I know they're there, even though I can't feel them right now. And how amazing and, and important that can be because it is going to be the thing that that can help get get us back to that. I definitely identify with what you're saying. And and I think that's something that is really powerful about your story is just this like fierce perseverance that you are not willing to let up. And that's awesome. And it's it's you know, it's coming at such a great cost too. You know, there's, there's that space of being able to hold both of those of like, there's this ferocity and this power that feels really important. And also it's painful and hard and, and lonely sometimes, but that, you know, the next indicated step, the reminiscent kind of values that, that definitely can help a lot. Well, so if, if people wanted to offer you specifically some support, you know, is there a way that they could do that for you? Our community is hearing this and, and holding so much loving space for you. Yeah, and I, I am immensely grateful and recognize privilege in both being able to have the opportunity to share my story. Because I, I know there are those out there who, who have yet to, to share theirs. So I am grateful for the time that you've given me here. And certainly I'm grateful for those who uh, believe survivors and are there for us. So I do, you know, I do have a change.org petition uh, that is pinned to my social media page on my Twitter. And people are free to read, take a look at that, sign it, share it to spread the word. And, you know, definitely amplify the stories of other survivors. And, you know, if I were to give words of encouragement to other survivors, just know that you matter. And that your dignity, your humanity isn't to be dictated by the failures within our institutions. You're not alone. <laughs> as cliche as that expression is, it's true. You're definitely not alone. But, you know, I, I definitely hope to see us usher in um, a new era of progress and hope for survivors. I have a feeling you'll be definitely one of the like the people at the front of that march that is like welcoming in this new era <laughs> yeah I, I hope so i hope i you know I'm, I'm gonna hang in there alongside everyone else yes well we'll we'll definitely hang in there with you and and we we've got you if you feel like you need to step back and take a break at any point for sure yeah thank you but yeah We'll we'll include your the link to your your Twitter feed and the link to your your case in the show notes as well if you would like. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, we can do that so people can go right to it. Okay, well, thank you so much for being here tonight. Thank you. I appreciate your your authenticity as well as 
all of the information that you provided with us tonight. And yes, like we're all collectively the millions of us that exist, billions across the world, sending so much love and support your way. Thank you. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you. I am a clinical psychologist and love to share these skills and tips to build resilience and recovery. However, this podcast is not a replacement for psychotherapy or mental health care. We have links in our show notes where you can connect with a provider or you can get a referral from your primary doctor if you wish to receive those services. If you are struggling today or wish to speak to someone, know that RAIN is always available 24 hours a day, seven days a week to offer support, guidance, and referrals for help. You can speak to someone right now at RAIN at the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-4673. The Initiated Survivor is a podcast written and hosted by me, Kelsey Harper. It is produced and edited and all around awesome podcast magic is casted by Sam Valentine. The beautiful music you heard is written and performed by Michael Carpenter Jr. If you wish, please leave us a sweet review so other survivors can find this podcast and get connected as well.